Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. And when we get right down to it, everything that governs our world and us comes down to ethics. Everything. Even your personal choices. There is moral. There are ethics involved in that. This gentleman has taught that as a professor for many years. We're talking about business ethics as well as researched it deeply. And we are going to take a look at some things trending in the news recently that involve ethics. And a fascinating look with this guy, Ronald Birnbaum, joins us back again on the program. Welcome back. How are you? Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm well. Okay. Yeah, doing All okay. Right. And when we, last, when we last got together, we were talking about Claudine Gay as the Harvard president, she resigned due to some situations uh, surrounding her and her background. And I guess we should recap. Why don't we do that and then move forward? Because this this whole situation, ethically involved, has radically changed in the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? Well, yes and no. Uh, it it uh, ha- What has happened is that each of the individual elements in it have now metastasized into issues on their own. Uh, but the primary issue we discussed then was her appointment at Harvard, how she conducted herself, whether they should have appointed her in the first place, how they handled it when uh, uh, some uh, opposition that could have been predicted arose, and how they handled it, uh, how they handled that opposition, and uh, the most basic way in which they handled it, as we know, is that she has now resigned. Okay, so I thought, well, time to move on. You know, Boeing planes are (laughs) developing problems left and right. There's so many new issues. But then I found that uh, I could run, but I couldn't hide that this is still even even the Boeing defense in, in one case was that they hired too many women who didn't know enough about planes. So, um, so here we are with DEI uh, again, and um, so I I think uh, last week uh, was not the beginning of the end of DEI, but as Churchill once said, the end of the beginning, <laughs> and let's go forward for them. Uh, uh, it. The main thing it did, besides costing Claudine Gay her job and embarrassing the trustees and the institution, which would be enough, but it gave DEI opponents an opportunity to go on the warpath. And uh, two of the key antagonists were uh, were uh, Harvard graduates, members of the Harvard community, one is Elise Stefanik, whom I had referred to as Alyssa Slotnick, different people. It's Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik is now being mentioned as a possible running mate for Donald Trump, uh, should he be nominated. Uh, and so she's a representative from the state of New York and uh, in the House of Representatives. And then there is Bill Ackman, who is head of uh, Pershing Square Investments, and he's uh, he is now an active participant in the fray. And then there's a third, which is the Claremont Institute, 
Uh, Claremont Institute is well, but not recently known to me as a, as a young reporter, which is how, uh, in many ways, my career as it's started. I was a reporter for the Claremont Courier. I knew a lot of those people. I knew the town, which is a delightful place if you've ever been there. Uh, but the most prominent celebrity I knew was a guy who had run for the House of Representatives uh, in uh, 1948 against a young congressman named Richard Nixon and run for Congress against him and lost. And uh, he used to have parties and we all used to talk about, uh, uh, you know, the good old days, mm -hmm. at least for them, but not for me. I was just a child at the time. So uh, DEA is an acronym for diversity, equity, and inclusion. How does DEI, you recall our basic frame, uh, how does it improve more perfect union or mend, tikkun olam, uh, mend the world, existing uh, academic institutions? Who benefits? Are there costs? How are these costs covered? Could these resources be put to better or more efficient use to achieve the same objectives? Now, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, what are what are the objectives to these ends? Well, academic programs where history is no longer going to be just guns and boats, as they used to say in my day, but it's going to be about uh, individual communities, some of them living to a greater or lesser degree apart from the major uh, communities. We're not just going to talk about uh, history of Western civilization, uh, whatever that means. <clears throat> Gandhi once said when he was asked about Western civilization, he said he thought it would be a good idea. Well, anyway, that was what education was about, uh, certainly in my day, uh, primarily. But we're also going to talk about uh, un uncovered or to a greater or lesser degree ignored uh, communities like uh, indigenous Americans, uh, African Americans, women, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, and we're going to do so in uh, four different ways. We're going to have academic programs. We're going to have programs that teach African-American history, for example. We're going to uh, uh, sort of try to tinker with the uh, student body composition with various different alternative ways of gaining admission to these institutions. Uh, we're going to hire faculty. Uh, that uh, belong to these various different groups or, and or have done uh, scholarship in those areas. And top management and trustees will also be represented uh, in, in this population. You know, in, in now, face, face value with Claudine Gay, uh, be it she's an African-American woman, a lot of, a lot of, Things were in place. It seemed, again, just looking at this uh, with, with flying over the bleachers, 
it would seem that it was a reasonable choice to put her in there as president. Do you do you feel the same way? Yes, I do. Uh, in spite of you will remember that I would not have picked her had I been on the board of trustees for reasons I elaborated at that time. Mm-hmm. But certainly she ticked all the boxes. Uh, she, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly call her an African-American, uh, but she came from Haiti. She was a black person. Mm-hmm. And uh, her scholarship, uh, such as it was, was done in uh, that area uh, and African-American studies. And she had something else that a lot of highly qualified people that meet both of those uh, requirements did not have. She had a considerable management experience in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And I did a little bit of studying, and I found, for example, that uh, at at least one institution, the uh, DEI program cost overall uh, about uh, $30 $30 million in salaries and benefits for over 100 employees, that it had 17 employees who were paid more than $200,000 a year, which is more than a, a professor at a very advanced stage in his or her career, mm-hmm. and that the chief executive officer of that program was paid nearly $400,000. So you see what kind of money is going to be is being poured in to the management and support uh, for these kinds of programs. And I think that is one of the major issues that has to uh, be uh, dealt with uh, here. Now, you recall the analytic frame that we had where we want to we want to look at, uh, first of all, divides into two categories. One is improvement. How can we make this a more perfect union? And as the, uh, as the Constitution reads, and there are, uh, there are three different ways of doing that, uh, or broad schools of thought. Utilitarianism, uh, started by Jeremy Bentham, the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, so, but there are problems with this, not just in the case of DEI, but with any, uh, any program, the problem is, uh, so-called externalities, hard to achieve perfect, uh, equilibrium. You, you are reshuffling the deck so that what happens is maybe you're dealing the people who've had a bad hand, a better one. But are you doing so at the expense of other people who do not have a very good hand? And so that has certainly raised uh, uh, questions. Uh, And then the second is law. Now, law gives you an exit ramp, so to speak. You can say to people who say, well, you have to do this. You can say, well, you know, we would have to fight that out in the courts. It would cost a tremendous amount of money. There are a lot of people on our board who say that there are legal problems involved. So it gives you an exit ramp, but it also gives that ramp to people who want to attack you and say that you are base, 
you are uh, breaking the law. This is so-called reverse discrimination or whatever you want to call it. And the third category is uh, virtue, personal virtue. And that is, what is the virtuous thing for me to do if I'm Claudine Gay or Penny Pritzker, who was chairman of the Harvard board at the time? And then there's, uh, and that comes to us from Aristotle. Then there's institutional virtue, uh, designing institutions that uh, enable and encourage and incentivize people to be more virtuous. And that was Aristotle's student, uh, Plato. So, uh, first of all, uh, then, then we start talking about uh, uh, how you use these and, 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 and to design a DEI program, which you inevitably do, for better or worse, and how you uh, evaluate the efficacy uh, of that program and uh, how best to use those strengths to accommodate uh, the various constituencies within the universities who, you know, have fundamentally different views and interests. You know, the trustees who want thing, they want to raise money. They, the funders, they want to see their programs and their university reflect their wishes. Uh, the academic, the academy, which wants to see uh, un, un, uh, unexamined questions examined. Uh, and the students who uh, want, uh, you know, to share their community with a diverse group of people, uh, but they want to feel as though all of all of their colleagues and friends uh, deserve uh, to be uh, admitted and deserve the same admission they got. And uh, so... Uh, what are the priorities for accommodating these fundamentally different views? Well, uh, Harvard, uh, for better or for worse, uh, while Harvard was doing, uh, at least in my view, uh, with certain obvious or certain things that, at least in my personal view, it could have done better differently or not at all, Harvard was doing a pretty good job until Claudine came along and then, for better or for worse, and I'm sure all of the trustees would vigorously deny this, they thought they could solve their problem with a single action, and that was to name a president who combined all of these things and who had experience as very few, if any, academics had in administering DEI programs, designing them, so on and so forth, and who uh, had uh, had uh, earned her chops, so to speak, in that particular area, which was even not, I would say, entirely recognized to this day. Well, Ronald, as, I want to ask you, at the, right at this point, yeah. Where do you think it went wrong? Was it the discovery of her, call it alleged plagiarism? Where where did things derail? Because in the beginning here, we said that seemed like she was a reasonable candidate for 
Harvard president, but didn't work out that way. So what what, what are your feelings that that turned this into a uh, a negative story? Well, I think uh, I think that uh, at the beginning there were from the very beginning there were must have been uh, trustees and certainly within the community of which I'm also a member, people had serious reservations uh, about her candidacy, even uh, even describing it in the best possible light. She wasn't, you know, the kind of person we typically thought of uh, as a Harvard president. Why is that? And why why, is, why that? is that? Well, unlike her predecessor, she hadn't been president of another comparable or Almost no no place is comparable in my opinion. <laughs> Another comparable institution as he was at I think Tufts. Mm -hmm. She had been a a very well recognized uh, scholar uh, in key areas of history, as his predecessor was, and, and she just didn't fit into the mold. She wasn't, uh, and even if you were back in the nineteen twenties. When you had to have three last names to be president of Harvard, mm. Abbott, Lawrence, and Lowell, uh, she wasn't that kind of a president either. So she was a radical departure, uh, and uh, though she had bona fides, I would have to say that they weren't any of the bona fides that had been traditional, which I guess is okay. If you can accept the bona fides that constitute bona fides in that area. So then the plagiarism guys went to work and they found one thing after another and they found a rather slim record of scholarship anyway. No books, uh, essays published in fairly obscure journals and only 11 at that over a long career, fairly long career. So they started to say, okay, even if she's everything you say, we'll concede that, you still have to deal with these issues. And uh, that's when the board turned. First they, first they picked her, then they stood behind her, then they dumped her. I, uh, I, I want to ask, I'm, I'm far from the expert, you're much much more connected than the average person to Harvard. Your daughter is connected as well. Uh, not just as a student there. Um, how come, how did she get this far? You know, we have these, you know, what, what looks like a, you know, a, a speed bump here, another speed bump here, another speed bump here. And she became the president. How did it even get that far? Well, uh, first of all, she was a, a graduate of a number of distinguished, had degrees from a number of important institutions. I recall one of them was Stanford. I don't remember for sure whether one of them is was Harvard, but it probably was. And uh, in that field, which was a, an infant field, if in fact it was a field at all, uh, she had a vita, a record of publications, and most importantly, uh, she had managed Harvard's program in this er area for a number of years. Uh, and uh, so it seemed more like a promotion than a selection. Uh, 
And she was at the time of her selection, and I really can't figure this out. You'll have to ask somebody else about that. The dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, which would seem to be a logical uh, spot from which to promote her. So uh, it looked like all systems go. We got to do this. Let's do it now. Let's do it with her uh, and get it out of the way. And so I will just conclude with my remarks or my introduction with, with these observations. This is a conversation possibly without end as to how we're going to do this. My own feeling is that it's much more important to uh, to get entries into the mainstream than to, you know, do this kind of freestanding administrative authority. For example, it's unthinkable now, so there has been some success, that we wouldn't have a survey course in American history without a considerable amount of it, none of which was the case in my day, uh, devoted to African-American history and to slavery. I suppose you might make an exception for the fact that once a year, the Brattle Cinema in uh, Harvard Square would have a showing of Gone with the Wind, but that was about it. <laughs> and um, then uh, then the, the freestanding element would evolve from that rather than possibly the other way around. That's that's one potential solution. But they did think they, I think they did uh, sort of get lazy on this one and take the easy way out. Her scholarship didn't start being attacked. Uh, it was just the legitimacy of that particular choice from that particular field of expertise and so on that was un under attack. But if you if you wanted to uh, pick, you know, a an African American woman uh, to be the president of Harvard, uh, one who comes immediately to mind, I'm not sure she would be she would be interested is Isabel Wilkins Wilkerson. And you can see her uh, her her biography in a film called Origin, which is opening at a theater near you now. So they, they did have other potential candidates they could have reached out to out of the university. And even if they, whether they had uh, absolutely superior uh, qualifications or not, they didn't have the disadvantage of having been from Harvard and just being uh, kicked upstairs. If you had so, to, uh, I'm, I'm just about out of time, but I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Scale of one to 10, in your opinion, Claudine, if she, 10 being perfect candidate, checks all the boxes, did the background check, no plagiarism, things like that. 10, fantastic. Where would you put her as a uh, candidate for, for this position? Maybe somewhere between three and four. Hmm, okay. Because I don't, you know, I don't, it may be just my prejudice, but I don't think this administrative experience is, is the key element. So if I, if I just have close with one, uh, one observation, I, I came to the conclusion 
that probably there has only been one entirely successful uh, example of DEI that I can think of, uh, and that is Noah's Ark. I mean, there was no discrimination. Two of every single group imaginable admitted uh, there was equity. You know, everybody had a certain amount of space. There was no way of handling it any other way. And definitely there was inclusion. There was only one vote. Mm. And I don't know whether we'll ever have those ideal factors again, but that would be the ideal DEI example, in and, my opinion. Well, interesting that you, you, you bring up that analogy. Uh, Noah, based on my accounts, had the experience to pilot that that, that boat. Yeah. He also had. Wow. Uh, fantastic talking with you today. Uh, interesting insight and, and definitely, uh, a trending story that continues. Um, Ronald, always great hearing your, your viewpoints on, on all of this. If somebody yeah. wants to reach out, certainly they can always reach us instant feedback, Steve at gmail.com. Uh, your email address. So you, uh, open to sharing that if somebody wants to reach out directly to you. Absolutely. It's Ronald.Berenbein, B-E-R-E-N-B-E-I-M at gmail.com. And if you want to call me, uh, I have a landline. That's what I use. 212-831-0645. And you, you cannot text me to that landline, okay? Gotcha. <laughs> you yep. have to call me and talk to me. <laughs> yep, which is perfectly fine. Uh, I have my landline. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I still use it. Uh, when my cell's not working, I'm on the landline. Uh, thank you so much for being here today, Ronald. Looking forward next time we get together. So am I. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Coming right back. Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you, A, put yourself in her shoes... How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council.